1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is as grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would illumine our minds, that you would quicken our emotions and our wills, that we might seek not only to know you and your truth better from this word, but that it would affect our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever thought about how our culture will be remembered in 50 years or 100 years? I think one aspect of that is that our culture will be remembered as one in which there was an incredible lack of permanence. What do I mean by that? Well, even in our parents' generation or grandparents' generation, people moved around the country far less than they do now. I mean, I grew up in snowy Buffalo, New York. Some of you lived in California, Florida, probably even as far away as Maine. There's another thing, too, that a generation is passing in which a man holds one job. I was able to remark after having worked only, I think, four years that I already held more jobs than my father had because I was on my second. We can even see it in things around us, right? Kids, what is almost everything that you own made of? Almost every single toy that you have. Plastic, right? Plastic is everywhere. And it's not just that toys are plastic. They're making things out of plastic now that years ago were made out of metal or wood. You know, things that are supposed to stand up under stress. How many times have you found yourself saying this? They just don't make it like they used to anymore. Right? You don't have to be of retirement age to say that. You can be younger than I am and remember a time in which things were made more sturdily. As a matter of fact, we might think our whole economy is based on the fact that refrigerators aren't supposed to last 30 years anymore. They're supposed to last 10 or 12. So that in your lifetime you buy two or three, not one. This is what we see all around us, at work, at play, in our homes. And oftentimes we can bring that spirit to our lives in Christ and to the church. We lack permanence, and we're always seeking the next best thing that will give us better ministry, better lives, better families. You've seen the cycle. I don't even have to recite for you the various things that come out. Each year there's a new book that's all the rage, or a new movie that's all the rage. And by about ten months from then, it's forgotten, and then there's a new rage. You see, what Peter says is, in times of difficulty, when the rubber meets the road, 
There is something that has permanence. It has effective permanence. It's the Word of God. That's where we are to seek our help in our lives, in our ministry, and in our growth as Christians. In the very Word of God. And so what I would like us to do this morning is to look here at Peter and what he has to say to us about the Word of God. And see the progression of the effect of the Word of God on the Christian. The first thing that we'll see is the seed of the Christian. We're actually going to pick that up at the end of our text, but it's the basis of everything that goes on in the Christian's life. The seed of the Christian. You know, kids, it's like when you plant seeds and trees grow. Like after you've eaten an apple and you take one out of the core and you go, Mom, can I plant this in the backyard so we have an apple tree? A seed of the Christian. But then, after we look at the seed of the Christian... We need to see another thing that a tree analogy is helpful for. That is the root of the Christian. You see, trees, if they're going to grow, take deep root in the ground. Some of you know that from experience. As roots have broken up parts of your driveway or maybe even a part of your foundation of your home. Roots are strong and deep. The seed of the Christian, then the the root of the Christian. But then there's something else that we cannot forget. And we need to always remind ourselves. That... Where there is a seed and where there is root, there will always be fruit. The fruit of the Christian. So let us then look now and see the seed of the Christian. Look at what Peter says here as he is discussing the great salvation that is ours and as a prompt to holiness of life. He says here in verse 23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. The first thing that Peter does is he sets up a contrast. This is not unlike what many preachers do. Perhaps you even do it in your home. You say, well, let me describe this to you. It's not like this. It is like that. Right? It's not wet. It's dry. It's not dark. It's light. It's a good way to give us a picture of what's going on. And the first thing that he says is, The seed of the Christian is not the perishable seed of the world. And he gives us a wonderful quote from Isaiah 40. He says, All flesh is as grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. And by doing that, he's being all-inclusive. Do you notice how he says, All flesh is like grass? It's not just some. It's not cultured. It's not weak. It's all flesh. Everything in the world is perishable. You see, the world has plenty of plans for making better people, doesn't it? There's one that you hear all the time, and you hear doubly all the time around Election Day. If you listen to the politicians and the news media and the physicians and the doctors, all we need to do to solve every problem in the world is have more and better education. That's all we need to do. It's the answer to everything. Drugs, more education. Bad families, more education. War, more education. Now, education is a good thing. But there's a difference between a good thing and something that solves all of our problems. Education has become, in our world, a panacea. It's what the world sees as the solution to every problem. And the interesting thing is that you never need to reach the solution because as long as there's still a problem, you just need to add another dollop of education on top. Now, we could point that out and 
maybe even have certain candidates in our mind as we think about this election season, but the the same thing is true from the opposite side. There are others who would be sort of more realistic types, not dreamers, not idealists, that would say, well, I know what the solution is to the world. It's more and better laws. We have a drug problem, lock them up, throw away the key. Triple the sentences, that'll take care of all the problem. We have difficulties in schools, frisk every student when they go in. No zero tolerance policies. And we set up civil laws as the way to solve, again, all of our problems. But there's a problem here, just like education, civil laws can't solve everything. They can't. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest proponents of law as solution, Oliver Wendell Holmes, said that law is made for the bad man, not the good man. You don't need a law to tell the good man to do what's right. You need a law to prevent the bad man from doing what's wrong. You see, laws can't solve our problems. Education can't solve our problems. Because, you see, the things around us aren't what they seem, Peter says. It's not just that all flesh is like grass. He says all its glory is like the flower of grass. You see, even the things that we look out and see and seem good and bright, when cast in the light of eternity, when cast in the light of real and significant problems, they fade away. Right? When you've just come back from the doctor and the tests are not good, you don't think about how you would have rather had a four-year degree than a two-year degree. Right? When there's real stress in the marriage, you're not really that concerned about the penalties for marijuana smoking. You see, we have problems of real significance that the world can't touch because it is built into us. Everything that's out there that even is good just simply falls short, Peter says. It's like that old poem that's now so many more know because of the films. It was in J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Fellowship of the Ring, and it was one of the descriptions of Strider, it was all that glitters is not gold. And that's true. It was true before Tolkien wrote the book. There are things that sparkle that don't have any real significance. In Peter's day, as he was looking out and as the people were looking out, they would see magnificence and power in Rome. The Roman Empire was more powerful than the American Empire ever has been. They ruled the known world. They were in charge of everything. They built glorious structures. They had roads that stretched from sea to sea. It seemed like nothing could topple Rome. And yet, Rome didn't last. But the church did. You see, not everything that flowers and looks beautiful is permanent. But you see, in contrast to the perishable seed of the world... Peter says we need to look to the powerful seed of God. He says, you have been born again, not by imperishable seed, but by, or excuse me, not by perishable seed, but by imperishable. There's a, there's a contrast here that Peter is building up. Not stuff that wastes away, but things that are permanent. The words of the Lord. And he emphasizes it by saying not only is it imperishable, it is living and abiding. And what Peter does here is he quotes extensively from Isaiah 40. I'm going to turn there. You can turn there if you wish. I just want to point a few things out. Because this quote 
is applicable not just for the quote that it is, but for its context. If you turn to, to Isaiah 40, you'll see perhaps if you have headers in your Bible, that one of the headers for Isaiah 40 is the comfort for God's people. And it begins, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then if we move down, we see a very familiar passage, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert and the highway. You see, that is applicable to John the Baptist. And we immediately think of John and him coming and being the precursor of Jesus Christ. You see, what Peter is saying here is the comfort and promise that comes from the Word of God, that comforted a people in Isaiah's day, in exile, in Babylon, is the same comfort that you have now in your difficulties, Cappadocians and Galatians. And people from Katy and Sugarland, and Fulcher, and Houston. It's the same comfort and promise from the Lord God. There's a chain here that Peter is deliberately setting up from Isaiah through John the Baptist to the Lord Jesus Christ to his verses in 1 Peter. You see, Peter says that the Word of God is eternal. It hasn't changed in centuries, he said. The very words that were applicable centuries before in Isaiah's day, are applicable today. And so that is true for us. This word is eternal, it is imperishable, but it is also the word of the Lord, of the one who is powerful. You see, the word of God is eternal because of the one who has spoken it. It's because of God and His power that the Word has power. And again, if we look down in Isaiah 40, we'll see after our quoted text, in verse 12 and following, it describes how great and powerful God is. In big images. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Whom did He consult? It goes on and on about how powerful God is. There's a reason why Peter chose this text. Because he wants you and me to know that not only is the root, is the seed of the Christian, the start of the Christian life, the word of God, but it is the word of a powerful God that none can oppose. And this word is the good news, Peter says, verse 25. It is the good news that was preached to you. You see, this word is the gospel. The gospel is what leads us to Jesus. And the gospel is what tells us how to live after we have met him. This is the start of the Christian's life. Your life must be founded on the word of God. It is power. It is life. But the word of God makes a change in us. It is not our life. It is the foundation of our life. And what happens then is the Word of God changes us and it causes us to begin to grow and take root. And Peter describes this in verse 22. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He says the first thing that takes root in the Christian is that you have purified souls. And I want you to notice something. Words are important in the Bible, even single words. It doesn't say purified. It says having purified. You notice that? 
It's what we call a past tense. It's what we say, kids, when we're talking about something that's already been done and finished. It's already completed. We're describing something in our past, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. What Peter is saying here is, in the past, you have been set apart. This word purified has the idea of being set apart for a purpose. Set apart from the ways of the world. And being that Peter's uh, congregation would have the Bible of the Old Testament, he's using Old Testament imagery here. He's using imagery that's involved in Old Testament Israel. The first thing that would come to mind of many people would be the Levites. They were to purify themselves. They were to be serving the Lord as pure vessels. And they had an entire ritual for that. They wore certain clothes with certain ointments and certain washings. And all of these things were designed to make them pure. But there's something that we can't forget with that same imagery. And that is, you couldn't make yourself a Levite. You couldn't go out and say, you know, I'm going to get that kind of cloak... And I know the mixture for that perfume and ointment. And I know where to stand. And I can learn the prayers. And I can do that. I can be a Levite. No. You were only a Levite because you were a member of a family that God had specifically chosen and ordained. And do you remember in the days of the return from exile when the temple was being reset up and the walls were being rebuilt and they were trying to reestablish the worship of God, and they wanted to reestablish the Levites. Do you remember what the Levites had to do? They had to produce a piece of paper that said, this man was my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather, all the way back to the exile. And if you couldn't produce the piece of paper, you couldn't be a Levite. You had to show who you were before you could do the acts of daily cleansing. That's what it is for the Christian. You see, we have purified souls, and this purification is what the New Testament refers to by another term that you're familiar with. It's conversion. It's what John says in 1 John 3, where he says that we are to be pure even as Jesus is pure, because we are children of God. It's what James says in chapter 4. You see, we are pure because of what God has done. This is how our purified souls come about. Because Peter says, you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, when we first look at that, we might think, what can I do? Should I pray more? Should I tithe more? Should I do more good deeds? Should I help old ladies across the street? What should I do in obedience to the truth? But you see, the phrase here is a biblical one. Obedience to the truth is referred to by Paul, by John, in this fashion. We might say, obedience in believing the gospel. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He says, the message of truth is the gospel of salvation. You see, how this purification comes about is by believing the gospel. By believing the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's by obedience to the gospel that we have purified souls. We might say that this is the human perspective on our root as Christians. That we must have faith and we must believe. Don't ever think that you can shortcut that. 
Don't think that you can rely simply on some kind of vague election or some sort of set of beliefs. You must have specific faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners in order to have a pure soul. That's why it's one of the questions that we ask in our membership vows. Do you acknowledge yourself as a sinner? And do you rest alone upon Jesus Christ for salvation? You see, this obedience is obedience to the gospel. That's the human perspective. But the other root of the Christian is what Peter says here in verse 23, since you have been born again. It's parallel to the statement of purifying your souls. It's also a past tense verb. It's also something that has happened in the past. And the way it's described for us is it's an event that's happened in the past that affects who we are today. What do I mean by that? It would be, for example, where you would say to a woman, having given birth, you are now a mother. Being a mother continues on, and it is a result of the act of having given birth. Something that has happened in the past affects who you are today. So having purified your souls and having been born again, this is who you are today. And this is clearly the work of God, lest we forget Turn your Bibles over one page, perhaps, to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. According to his great mercy, Peter says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's according to God's mercy that he has caused us to be born again. This is God's perspective on our salvation, that we are born again. The difficulty that we have with this is that being born again has become a very flippant phrase, hasn't it? It's not even really used very often in Christian circles. It's usually used as an insult that people hurl at others, right? Oh, you know Bob, he's one of those born-agains. He's miserable and cranky. He won't do anything. Why won't you go out with us and do this? What are you, one of those born-agains? Right? It's almost an act of derision. But in Peter's day, it would be a term that would be a term of wonder. Think about how Nicodemus responds to Jesus saying this in John 3. Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, um, Rabbi, a little bit big here. Don't know how I can get back in my mother's womb and out again. Not really sure how that works, but I'm five foot whatever. How, how can you be born again? He can't even understand it. How does a grown man be born again? But you see, what we need to do is to grasp onto the biblical concept of this and to embrace the wonder of it. Because being born again means two things, doesn't it? The first thing it means is you are not alive because you need to be born. You are dead in your sins. You are lost. You are in need of a Savior. You are in need of being born again. That is the change. That is the passage into Christian life. The second thing that it means is that we are passive in the process. Now, I haven't had a chance yet to to speak to the Arrowwood's new daughter, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that they didn't ask for her vote as to what her birthday would be. They didn't ask her if she'd rather be born on a Monday or a Tuesday, right? 
Anyone here get to pick their birthday? Moms, you know especially that the only person involved in the birthing is the mom. The child is not involved in the birthing. The child is a result of the birth. So it is with spiritual things. We don't pick and choose. It is God who gives us life through the Word of God, the powerful Word of God. And this is where our life life begins. Rooted in the power of God and the Word of God. The seed of the Christian is the Word of God. And it purifies our souls. And it causes us to be born again. And we take deep root. But the other thing that we can't forget, and Peter will not let us, is that Christians are to show fruit. You see, Peter was not one to ever allow people to just simply say what they believed. To just simply assume that they could think about a few things and claim to be Christians. He said, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to follow him. You need to do certain things. And you need to show fruit. And he says this after he speaks of having been purified and being born again. He says here in verse 22, that we are purified by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. We might even say, for the purpose that. The for there is to tell us why we have purified our souls by obedience to the truth. Why have we believed the gospel? Peter says, it's so that we can have a sincere brotherly love. That we can love one another earnestly. That we can have a new life. You see, the purpose of the gospel is setting us apart so that we may be who God intends us to be. That we may act as God desires because of who we are. And the new heart is a manifestation of who the Christian is. It's as if Peter said this to you. You tell me you're a Christian. Let me see your heart. No, don't get out a scalpel and... Dig into your chest. Let me see your heart. It's not unlike what James says. You say you have faith, show me your work so that I can know your faith is true. You see, Peter says, I want to know that you believe. And the way you show evidence of faith is by a changed life. I've used this analogy in other contexts, but I think it's appropriate. If we see a dog walking around, we don't expect the dog to meow. Right? What do you expect a dog to do? You expect a dog to bark, right? And if a dog meows, you look at the dog and what do you think? That's not really a dog. It must be a cat in dog's clothing. Because part of being a dog is to bark. And part of being a cat is to meow. We don't want dogs that meow. You see, that's kind of the way it's like for the Christian. To be a Christian is to show sincere love for the brothers and the sisters. You don't expect to see a Christian and see hatred and backbiting. That's not a part of being a Christian. Being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, having been purified by belief in the gospel, having been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, changes us. It gives us a new life. It gives us a new way. Act. And you see, Peter says this. He says, 
You are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Like water comes out of a spring, love comes out of a Christian. Has anyone here ever been to see Old Faithful? You know when you see Old Faithful and if you're there and you wait and it goes off and it... And you see the wonder of it, wow. That's what the world should see in your life and my life. Except for it's not water, it's love. It comes out naturally. And because it's so unusual, we don't see geysers everywhere. In a lost world, we don't see sincere love everywhere. It should make others say, I wonder what's with them. Why are they doing that? Why did he help me and show me kindness when he didn't have an angle to play? You see, that's part of being a Christian. It's the analogy that our Lord uses with trees, right? You go up to a tree, you pick off, and the fruit's good. What do you think about the tree? The tree's good, right? You don't cut down a tree that you pick good fruit from. You go up to a tree and you pick, and it's rotten and wormy and horrible. You don't say, oh, what a wonderful tree that is. I think I'll plant a couple more exactly like it. No. You say, that's not, that's a worthless tree. Bad fruit. You see, the gospel changes our being and gives us a new life. And that new life leads to a new love. Notice how Peter describes this love. It's a sincere love. A sincere brotherly love. It is without hypocrisy. It's not put on. We, we need this explained to us because when we think of sincere, we think of emotional. Right? When we think of someone's really sincere about something, maybe there are tears going down their eyes or they're, they're very emotional about it. But that's not what the Bible means when it says sincere. It means it's true. It's not made up. It's not hypocritical. This word was actually used to describe something that used to go on in plays in the ancient world. I don't know if it was because they couldn't find enough actors or they couldn't afford various sets. or I don't know, but oftentimes they would have only a few actors to play many, many parts in a play. And the way you could tell when someone was the king or the prophet or the soldier would be he would have a small mask on a stick and he would put it up in front of his face. And he would first be the king and then he would walk around and take that mask off and then put the, the priest up and he would be the priest for a while and then he would put up the soldier... And so part of being an actor was playing a part, having a mask. Okay? And what Peter is saying here is, Beloved, take off your masks. You don't need to come to church and first straighten up your big smile mask so everybody thinks everything is perfect in your life. You don't need to. You come as you are. You don't pretend to be listening to someone when they're telling you your difficulties when really you're thinking about how many degrees you should put the roast on. Peter wants us to be sincere and unhypocritical in our lives. And if we think about it, this just makes sense because how could we fool God with hypocritical love? He sees the heart. It's almost... We might say a complete waste of time. Because in the eyes of the only one that matters, the only thing that matters is sincere and real love. Sincere and real love for others. And it should be no surprise that this is the way the Bible talks about ministry. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is commending his ministry. And one of the things that he commends about his ministry is that they had sincere love for others. So, elders, deacons, Peter calls you to sincere love. To think of others before yourself. To serve them unhypocritically. To put others before yourself. That is where real ministry is found. In love for others. But wait a minute. Ladies, non-officers, you don't get off the hook either. Because one of the main marks of a Christian is sincere love. Paul says that in Romans 12 and verse 9. Part of being a Christian is to show sincere love to others. It's a mark of ministry. I would put it to us that if we would desire to see our church grow and we would desire to see an impact in the community, both before and after we construct our building, that the surest, most biblical way to get there is to begin cultivating, practicing, and enacting sincere love. That is the ground in which ministry flourishes. Sincere love. But it's not just sincere and unhypocritical love, it's brotherly love. It's love for the people of God. And this is a hard thing to do. What? Fred, what do you mean? You mean it's hard to love people in the church? Yes. And if you don't think so, you can take your mask down now. Because it is. Think about the people that won't let you alone but we'll talk your ear off for 25 minutes. Think about the times you've done that to others. Think about the person that's just annoying to be around all the time. Think about the person whose children you're not so fond of. Think about the person whose clothing or perfume you're not so fond of. Think about every, and lest you get prideful, think about every bad habit you have. And if you've forgotten some of them, have a frank conversation with your spouse. See, we are people that are difficult to get along with. But we are not called to get along with the people in church that we like. Or who are like us. Or who will help us. We are called to love all the brethren. Everyone. Popular, unpopular. Helpful, not so helpful. Needy, not so needy. See, that is a mark of a Christian... And it shouldn't surprise us because we are not saved for individual purposes. We are saved to be put into a permanent community. We might say it this way. Look around you. You're going to be with the people who are near you for a long time. Like eternity. You may as well start practicing to love them. If we cultivate that kind of love, if we have that kind of attitude, it, that is the dynamite that blows up stony hearts out in the world. When they see our love for each other. And this love is not just to be widely spread about to all the brothers, it's also to be earnest. So you can't love others in the church like sometimes children do their chores. Okay, I guess I'll make No, you have to cultivate it. You have to be excited about it. You have to be earnest about it. Not not with hypocrisy, 
Not with pretend or fake. You need to cultivate earnestness. Now you may say, Peter, that is a tall order. I can't do that. Pray. Where does the power for that come from? Where is your seed, Christian? The Word of God. Pray. Where does your root come from to bear this fruit? From a soul that is pure from believing the gospel. From a life that is renewed from being born again. You see, that is how love comes. A new life, a new love, and then finally a new obedience. And this shouldn't surprise us because our Lord gave us a command to love one another, didn't he? In John 13. But, you know, there's something that I like to forget or leave off. He commanded his disciples to love one another. Do you remember how? As I have loved you. Now, that's a tall order, isn't it? That you are to love all the people in the church as Jesus has loved you. That is a very tall order. It cannot be done without the power of God and the word of God. But that is what we are to strive toward, to obey God's word, to obey his commands. And as difficult as that may seem, it's a good thing because it drives us back to the only place that we can have hope. It's where Peter ends this passage, the gospel. It drives us back to the good news that has been preached to us. You see, the good news of the gospel is not just for the people out there. I keep telling you that. I hope to believe it more myself and that you will believe it more and more every day. The gospel is not just for the people who need saving. The gospel is for you and me, Christian. It's for us to obey. It's for us to love. It's for us to bear fruit in a community. We need the gospel. See, because God is in charge. He knows what he's doing. He's the one that plants the seed. He is the one that causes the root to grow. And he is the one that cultivates the fruit. So we need not focus on ourselves. But what we need to do is, with Peter, focus upon the eternal. Not on things that fade or fall, but on the eternal. The living powerful, abiding Word of God. That's our only hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this hope that we have in the Word of God. We pray, O Lord, that You would bless us this day, that You would help us to know You more, that we would know more and more about the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.